So we're starting the book of Colossians today. We finished off the book of Philippians last week. We're in kind of an intentional series to kick off the new year, looking at the prison letters of Paul. While he was in prison and he was getting squeezed by difficult circumstances, what was the genuine fruit coming out of his life? And that's in the big picture what we are looking at, that these are testimonies of a real person. These are testimonies of, of just a, a normal, everyday person like you and me who does not have more access to God than we do. And yet what is coming out of him when he's squeezed by life's most precarious and uncertain and difficult circumstances is incredible. As we've been looking at the last few weeks in Philippians, joy is his primary theme while in prison. And to be honest, if we're asking ourselves, like if, if we were in such circumstances and some of us can we relate to feeling locked down in some significant measures this last year, what was the fruit that was getting squeezed out of us? Was joy our primary fruit? Was hope our primary fruit? And that's what makes these letters so attractive. Because the same Jesus that was alive in him is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same spirit that was available to him and empowering him to worship in crazy circumstances is right here with us today. And so these, I see these letters as invitations to, man, I can live that kind of life? Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And so we're picking up in the book of Colossians here. So just a quick little context to orient ourselves. Colossians is written by or excuse me, he's written by Paul. The book, or excuse me, I'm excited. I want to like get past this and <laughs> stop, brain, be here for a moment. The church at Colossae was planted by, there we go, that was difficult, by one of Paul's disciples, a guy named Epaphras. Let's go ahead and get that little map up here. So it's interesting, just kind of Paul didn't plant this church. It, he was... It was planted by one of Paul's missionaries, one of his disciples. And I want to show us this map real quick here. Uh, because most likely what happened is when Paul's on his third missionary journey, right there in the middle of the map, you might see Ephesus. If not, by faith, believe me, it's there. <laughs> There's this place called Ephesus. Paul spent a lot of time there, two or three years, which is for him as this apostolic church planter with a fire to just move on to the next place. To spend several years in one place is really significant. And not coincidentally, the church at Ephesus really became the center of the, the Christian world after the church at Jerusalem fades in the latter part of the first century and Ephesus explodes with a vibrant missionary movement, very, very powerful church even into the third century. And so Paul, from his several years in Ephesus, we see in Acts 19, if you want to look it up, he is discipling people regularly and sending out his disciples as missionaries. So just about an inch to the right, <laughs> a few days journey, is Colossae, where we don't have any record that Paul was ever there, but Epaphras, one of Paul's disciples, went there and he planted the church. And we see this right in the beginning chapter of uh, Colossians 1, 5 to 8 
where Paul talks about the gospel that they have heard before in the word of truth. We can hit that next slide. The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, and it's bearing fruit and increasing as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras. So they heard the gospel first from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So he's on Paul's team. He was discipled by Paul, sent out by Paul. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. And he has made known to us, he has made known to us your love in the spirit. In other words, Paul doesn't have the firsthand experience with them. Epaphras plants a church, sent out as a fellow worker, and shares with Paul about who they are. Some of you might just like to know that for context, there's, there's more significance to it. Where does the book of Colossians come from? Basically, Epaphras goes and visits Paul in Rome because he's concerned about what's happening in the church. And so in a sense, he goes to his mentor, he visits him, which we see in chapter four, the end of the book, where it says, Epaphras visited me in my chains. And he says, and now he greets you from Rome. So essentially what you put together is Epaphras plants the church, and then when things get really tough and challenging, and he's kind of like, hey, this is above my security clearance, what do I do? So he goes to his mentor in Rome and asks for help. Paul writes a letter back to the church and says, here's where you've got to focus. Because there are some problems brewing. And the problems are very relatable, because they're problems of evil that don't go away. So let's get right into it. The church at Colossae was under attack and opposition. So Colossians 1.23 we get a little hint of that, where Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So you hear behind that, Paul is concerned that through Epaphras, who's concerned big time, they're concerned that their focus might be shifting from the core good news, basic gospel of Christianity rooted in Jesus Christ, centered in Jesus Christ, Epaphras is concerned that that hope is shifting. We go on in chapter 2, verse 4 to see where Paul says, essentially, the reason I'm writing this letter, he says, I tell you this, all of this good news about Jesus, which we're going to get to in a minute, so that no one may deceive you with fine-sounding arguments. Now we're getting down into the, the nitty gritty of what's going on in the church. Why is Epaphras scared? Why is he concerned as the church planting pastor? Why does he got to go make this long trip to Rome and essentially ask his mentor for help? Because back home, there are those even among the church who have been deceived and are now trying to deceive the church with fine sounding arguments. And we get a little bit more of it in a few verses later, where Paul says, So see to it that no one takes you captive by human philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority." 
So the attacks that were going on that, has got, that have Epaphras really concerned and having to call in the, the big guns for help is that they were being deceived by lies. But lies about spiritual things, philosophies, human ideas that were threatening to take the Colossians' hearts and minds and spirits off of and away from the simple preeminence of Christ. Mainly, in other words, that it's all about Jesus. That is the simplicity of the gospel. It is all about Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the point of it all. And if anyone or anything or any philosophy, human or otherwise, is, is if you're hearing anything that's taking you away from life being all about knowing Jesus, you're getting deceived in a potentially dangerous direction that can hold you captive. Now that's strong language because he's talking intentionally to Christians that have, let's quote the Bible or the song we just sang and the Bible verse we're going to see in a minute that have been set free. And Paul says, watch out. You're in danger of getting taken captive. So this is like, whoa, two Christians getting taken captive by lies, philosophies, ideas that are just taking them away from simply focusing on the preeminence of Jesus. And that's the threat that remains today and will always remain. And the challenge for us is we might, as we get into this and see a little bit more of the context of what those actual ideas and lies were, in some ways they might not be exactly the same as we're facing, but the bottom line truth is we will always face philosophies and ideas that threaten to take our focus off of Jesus and to put our hope and our trust and our joy and our pleasure in another place. And so we're in danger of being deceived and taken captive. And I like how there's a sobriety of this. Of it, it, it has some teeth to it. But so does everyday life. As First Peter says, and Alicia pointed out, the reality, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And he's talking about Christians. So it's like life is, is not just all, you know, fluff and cupcakes here. We've got to be aware of the reality that we are in a spiritual battle even after being saved we are in a spiritual battle things that are going to threaten to try to take us captive when Christ wants us to continue to walk in joy gratitude and freedom and so that's what Epaphras is concerned about that's what Paul's going after so he teaches and he prays on their behalf this prayer in chapter 1 verse 9 so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk, which means live, so as to walk out your everyday life, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Which, by the way, everywhere you see that in the Bible, that's not information, that's encounter. That is experience. That's why the word is used, Adam knew Eve, and it produced a baby. This is not 
intellectual knowledge all throughout the Bible. This is encounter. Increasing in the encounters with God, Paul's saying, which therefore being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. So Paul's ultimate goal is that they would live in a manner that's worthy of calling Jesus Lord, which is meaning like king of every aspect of our life. Every hope, every dream, every goal, every affection is rooted and grounded in King Jesus as Lord. So we walk his prayers that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of saying Jesus is my Lord. And we do that through encountering him. That's the power to do it. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's encounter him. And what's going to flow out of you is a joy and a gratitude, a transformed life, a life full of worship that is worthy of claiming Jesus is Lord of my life. That's his prayer. That's what he's going after. So to that end, Paul begins the letter by fixing them, fixing their eyes simply on the greatness of Jesus. That that is the solution. When you're encountering lies, when you're feeling that unstable, I don't know where my hope is at. I don't know if I'm still grounded in the gospel hope, the fruit coming out of my life right now, fear, despair, certainly not, the, the joy and gratitude that Paul's talking about here. What's the solution? Encounter Jesus again, afresh. So Paul fixes them on the greatness of Jesus by going into what is known as the Christ hymn by, by, by many scholars, where Colossians 1, right here, we're going to look at 15 to 20 and a little bit before and after, was possibly the first song that the early church sang, or it was the first song that the church at Colossae sang. Some, some scholars argue that Paul didn't necessarily write this portion, or maybe he did, but that it, it was such a popular song, a hymn, that it became translated and many places sang it. It's clearly a hymn. It's a song to be sung about the greatness of Jesus. To worship Jesus is what the soul is looking for. I mean, it's crazy. What we're going to look at in these Lyrics here in a moment are the same type of things that we sang today. Where I'm not here for blessing, I just want to know you. So that, one thing I ask, all I need, show me your glory. That's a combination of the psalmist who says that one thing I ask to see your beauty, to just be in your presence all the days of my life. Along with Moses, who said, show me your glory. Humans are made to worship. And we're all worshiping something. I mean, e even today, in the United States of America, is, is a spectacle of worship in the Super Bowl. Now, it might, the ratings might be really different this year, but let's just, in the past... To have 150 million plus people tuned into the same thing, and, and there is an aspect of entertainment and worship are really close together. So we've got to be careful on that. And there's an aspect of it that can be innocent and fun, and you know, wow, <laughs> that quarterback's 57 years old and he can still throw a spiral like 40 yards down the field. That's amazing. And you know, hope for old guys over 40. Go for it. That's awesome. 
But that, that's a lot of why we watch sports. We want to be wowed with greatness. We want to watch things we cannot do. Whether it's the sheer, like, just bone-crushing strength that's like, wow. Or whether it is, like, the almost, like, art, artistry of a 40-yard pass that goes through two defenders and hits a guy, you know, perfectly. His fingers don't move. And what do we say? Wow! What did we say this morning to Jesus? Wow! To be awed by greatness is, is built into us. Now, where we choose to put it makes all the difference in the world. And what Paul is trying to say is we are made for worship. And unless you fix your eyes, your heart, your spirit on Jesus, it, it, you are going to come up empty. There might be short and fleeting pleasures. But what your soul is made for is to know Jesus. And so he goes into this Christ hymn. Let's look at it briefly here. So to that end of worship, Paul begins the letter of Colossians by fixing their eyes on the greatness of Jesus. Let's start in verse 12. It says about God, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I mean, all of these things are just, it's too much. So it's well, a brief meditation here. Each of these phrases should be and could be the kind of stuff that is like, wow, this is my favorite thing about God. This is what saved my soul. This is what gets me up in the morning. This is what gives me hope. This aspect of God's nature gives me joy. This aspect of God's nature gives me courage. This, this aspect of God's nature broke lies that I was living in that were oppressing me and holding me down. Hallelujah. So there's a lot here. It's too, it's too much. It's too good. So we'll just briefly hit a few of them here. But to, God has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his son. I mean... There, there, there's been a, a big conversation, or I don't even not a conversation. There's been a lot of negative language this year, I wouldn't call it a conversation, about the word privilege. Without getting into that conversation, privilege has become just a bad thing in our culture. Where here it is in the Bible saying, in Christ, you have the wildest privilege you could possibly imagine. It's completely undeserved. Heck no, you didn't work for it. It's just given to you. God qualified you to share in the inheritance of his kingdom. God qualified you. So you're worthy. And we're going to get to this at the end. No one can tell you you're not worthy. In Christ, you are worthy. You are qualified to receive the inheritance of heaven. I mean, somebody needs that little phrase, that I'm qualified. Because you're hearing it in your head. You're not worthy. You say, shut up, devil. I'm qualified. That's right there. That's Bible. <laughs> in Christ, I'm qualified to receive the most wild inheritance I could imagine. And then this beautiful picture is painted light and darkness on our own strength. And this is where it's healthy. Meditate on God's word. The reason why the Bible has such rich imagery is because God... 
created us to use our holy imagination to know him better. So this is one of those, meditate on this word. Open up the Bible, see the imagery, and just, just think about the reality of you are in darkness on your own strength. You were in bondage on your own strength. When you live life apart from God on your own strength, it's not pretty. It's lonely, it's painful, it's dark, and you're probably making a mess of a lot of things in your life. And then this picture of, but you have been delivered. I like the literal translation better. You have been rescued. Like God is the ultimate savior, the ultimate knight in shining armor who went behind enemy lines into the darkness while you were in chains in a cell that you put yourself in and couldn't get out. And he broke those bonds, put you on the horse and rescued you, took you back and put you in the kingdom of light and said, you're qualified for all of this kingdom to be yours. Moving on, moving on. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So this is just a huge part of the, the Christ hymn here. And it introduces that the, our Savior is not a, a local deity. He's not, he's not a little tribal God. He's not just a little spirit that we go to because we have no other options. Our Savior is the, the cosmic Christ, the Savior of all. In fact, the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and the ruler over all. And so it's this massive picture of who Jesus really is to wrestle with. Do you believe this? This is who Jesus is. He is the creator, sustainer, and ruler over all. And to even ponder, I mean, the especially when you get the juxtaposition in the next verse, but the creator. This is a great one to talk about with kids. Creation. Where did all this come from? Did it come from nothing? Did it just show up? Look at the design. Look at the intelligence. Look at the beauty. And are we going to trust the narrative that it all came from nothing? And my kids, you know, the kids are smart. They realize that's a really stupid idea. <laughs> That doesn't make sense because where did the nothing come from? Where did the stuff come from out of nothing? So you got that option or you got that there was God. The supreme mover of it all, who initiated it all, who created it all, who designed it all. And then the kids get really, you know, not confused, but like the mind blowing. Well, but wait, so God was there forever. That makes sense. But how, how was God there forever? How did God get there? Well, let's play it out. Let's say someone created God. Who would that be? Oh, well, I guess that would be God. Yeah, so <laughs> it's either you know, all of this beauty and complexity and intelligence and design came from nothing and just decided to be awesome. <laughs> or, 
I know it's mind-boggling, but God existed forever. And with supreme intelligence and artistry and mastery, designed it all. And the absolutely radical Christian claim is, yes, that's true, and it's Jesus. The one who also then came to earth. And that goes on to say, so yet, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his, on, of his cross. So you see this juxtaposition, this wild, cosmic, you know, universal, through the stars into existence, and yet he's the head of the local church. And that in his body, on the cross, he reconciled a broken and fallen humanity that had made a mess of things on our own strength. He reconciled things to himself, reconciling heaven and earth in himself. So the cosmic Christ chose to suffer to make right what we had made wrong. And that's where you get these passages like Hebrews that say that he was tempted in every way we are, that he knows what we feel. He knows the the loneliness, the temptation, the rejection, all. It says he was tempted in every way. So everything that you feel that, that is hurtful and painful in this life The Bible is saying, no, that Jesus intentionally felt it as well. He went through it on your behalf so that you don't have to keep knowing that as the best life that you can do. He conquered it. He took that sin on himself. He paid for it so that you could be qualified to inherit heaven. And that where, that's where it gets to the last piece here. So you who were once alienated, alienated from God and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is a wow. That is a who are you in Christ? Who are you in God's eyes? Who are you from God's perspective in Christ? You are presented before him blameless, holy, without reproach. Those are the descriptions that are used to describe the Old Testament covenant of the Savior. The whole sacrificial system in in Judaism, in in the religion that God had set up. Those are the terms used. You need a spotless lamb without blemish, perfect, not dirty, not tainted. It needs to be holy, set apart, different, perfect. And now the same kind of language is used in Hebrews for Christ. Now the same kind of language is put on you as your identity in Christ. You are qualified in Christ to come before God and be called holy, 
without spot, without blameless. You're not dirty in God's eyes. No matter what you have done, you are not allowed to feel guilt and shame if you put on Christ. Without accusation. That's what that word means, without reproach. The literal, which I like much better, is without accusation. Meaning, you stand before God. And even though the book of Revelation describes Satan as the accuser of the saints, this passage says Jesus has earplugs in to Satan. He can't even hear accusations against you. In Christ, you are without accusation. So Satan might have his true and long list of all the ways that you've messed up and that you're dirty and you're not worthy and that you are unfit to be presented before a holy God. And though he might be right in the natural, if you're in Christ, Jesus says, I'm not even hearing it. I can't hear it. They are, that, I see them. They're holy. They're without blemish. They're without even accusation. I don't even hear you. That's good news. And in that, Christ was reconciling us back to him. It's the very, just think about that word, to be presented before God. In some ways, that's, that's a common fear of humanity. Like, are you ready to meet God? Are you ready to be presented before God? Even from the very beginning, from the moment humanity fall, fell in Genesis chapter 3, from the moment humanity decided to try to live on their own strength, apart from God, apart from God's wisdom, goodness, and plan, what was the first thing that happened? They realized they were naked. They had shame. They covered themselves, not only from one another, but from God, because God was walking through the garden in, in the cool of the day. And God says, hey, where are you guys at? I'm here to hang out. And they hid themselves. And God says, why are you hiding yourself from me? You don't have anything to be ashamed of. It's just me. Or do you? And they knew. They knew. They did not want to be presented before God anymore. They knew they weren't worthy. And that same picture of being presented before God is what is being shown here. That is what Christ reconciled. That is what Christ reconciled heaven and earth. So that once again, in Christ, humanity could be qualified to be presented before God with nothing holding us back. Nothing to fear. No shame, no guilt. It's, oh, I see you. Yeah, you're holy. You're blameless. So let's fellowship. Come and get to know me more. Because I am what you're looking for. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for the great, unspeakable lengths to which you went to reconcile us to yourself in Christ, to make possible a relationship with you in which we can stand before you from, for now and all eternity and be presented before you and your word to us, your identity bestowed upon us is qualified to receive all of heaven as an inheritance, holy, blameless, my beloved child, my beloved daughter, son, friend. 
And now we can get down to the business of which we're made, and that's to know you more. We thank you for these truths that are, in many ways, too, too high to speak of. Only by revelation in our heart can your Holy Spirit make these things real and increasingly real. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be stirring in our hearts, revealing, showing us your glory in whatever way you want to today. Let's just take a quiet minute. A lot covered in a short time. Let's just listen. Holy Spirit, we pray for each and every person here. If it's not already clear that you would dial into just that one key thing that you are wanting to say and reveal to each one of us an aspect of your nature, good news about who we are in you, whatever it may be. Holy Spirit, we just want to sit in, in a quiet, holy moment of your presence. Say, show us more, Lord. Dance a new dance like day.